and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. So, the clip. If you've not seen the film, Babe, it's a good little watch about talking animals on a farm. Um, and I think it's got some absolutely brilliant things to say. And it's very much, uh, Claire and I are going to speak this morning, very much as a response to... Joel and Chris's message a couple of weeks ago, um, which I've listened to now a number of times because they packed a punch. There were so many little gems in there. So if you've not listened to it again, please do, because there's lots to say about how we are as an individual and as a collective. And there's so much gold in there. And so we're going to talk a little bit from our perspectives this morning. Now, in the film, Babe, a pig is trying to basically work out his place in the world. His world is a farm. But that's his world and he's trying to work out his place. And a lot of that is around working out his standing with the farmer. And usually, a pig's on a farm are Sunday roast, to put it lightly. Um, but actually, this pig seems to become treasured in a different way. And he seems to be able to change what his normal role would be. But through the film, as you watch it, he has to ask the self, himself the question, can he trust it? Is he really seen differently by the farmer? Or is he ultimately going to the, face the same fate as the rest of his family? How secure is his place in his father's, farmer's eyes, playing a bit there, but could it be lost and could he still very much become bacon? Now, this resonates with me and some of you from your history. Um, how secure is our place in the father's eyes? Are we going to be okay? Really be okay? Are we really forgiven? Is it really all right? Or... <laughs> Are we still going to face a problem potentially further down the line? And what about his standing in the group? There's some absolutely brilliant interactions with the other animals because the dogs and cats are allowed in the house. They're, for some reason, they're allowed in. And it really did make you think, why have we decided to eat some animals and not others? Some of you don't eat any. I get that. I won't go there. Um, and there's a brilliant exchange with the cat who um, is informing babe at one point about his true place on the farm when he dares to step outside of what is his predestined status as a pig. And this is what the cat says. <laughs> he says, I probably shouldn't say this, but everyone is laughing at you because you seem to have forgotten your place. And he goes on to say how everyone has a place. Cow is here to be milked. Dog is here to help with the sheep. This is the cat. I am here to be beautiful and affectionate. That's cat's fear. Um, pigs don't have a purpose just like ducks. Animals that don't seem to have a purpose really do have one, the most noble of all. The bosses have to eat. Uh, pork or bacon, they only call them pigs when they're alive. Um, it's cracking. And then there's also in the film this dynamic between the sheep and the sheep dogs because he's decided he wants to be a sheep pig. And the sheep dogs have only one view of the sheep, and that is that they are stupid. 
It's the only thing they must be. Stupid, because otherwise they would listen. Um, and one of them says at one point, the truth is, but for the stupidity of sheep, Rex would have been the champion of champions. And when I heard that line, I thought, oh my goodness me, we all have our but fours. But for that person over there, but for that group over there, but for the idiots who think this, my life would be better than it is now. Um, and there's genuine, actually genuine hurt on both sides because um, Rex lost his place in the competition and his greatness because the sheep wouldn't listen to him one day in the, for the storm and he actually lost his hearing as well. Um, and so for him, he's like, well, I, I can't now hear because you wouldn't listen. So there's pain in these uh, scenarios. And the sheep also think the wolves, which is what they call the sheepdog, won't even call them by the name, are ignorant because they just bark and shout and don't treat them with any appreciation. They just lo look down on them for being dumb. They feel mistreated and nothing will convince them otherwise. Now, you might be thinking, why have we shown up to church and we're talking about farmyard animals? But in my defense, Jesus spoke in parables and that is a great parable for life and how we interact with each other. Because Babe takes a role that does not belong to him um, or indeed to anyone currently and becomes a sheep pig and shows them all that we should not always work to our predestined roles. It's not all we have to be and it's not all we are. Now, I like Babe's curiosity, and I think it can speak to us this morning regarding who he is as an individual on the farm, because his questions aren't easy, and they don't always get him great answers, but they are great questions. And we need to get very curious about ourselves, and that's not a self-centered thing if we grasp and apply what we heard two weeks ago about how we are a unique part of an incredible ocean, and as we heard from Joel, the belief that every human has innate value and meaning, all unique and rare, and that's what we get to share with our neighbor. So if I don't get curious about, well, who am I? in this world, how do I know who I am and what I've got to share with my neighbor? I'll just go around with my predestined things about what I think about myself and I can bring and my limitations or my goals or what everyone else wants me to be. And I won't actually be as rich a part of the ocean as if I actually get curious. But we can worry so much about what our neighbor thinks of us. And I read this this week. Sometimes we please others in a group out of a desire to organize their reactions and avoid the discomfort that their dislike brings up in us. People pleasing can be a strategy to keep us safely in control, wrapped in a veneer of pseudo generosity or flexibility. We're afraid of losing people and yet lose ourselves in the process of our futile bid to keep them happy. I don't believe that can just be me sometimes. Um, now, the origins, when we think about where all this comes from in our lives, we've had to depend on others. So we had to please them because we were dependent on them. And that might be when you were a child and all those other things, or when you were in a job that you're like, if I don't keep this person happy, I might not have my job. But there's reasons sometimes where we want to keep people happy. And even when you go way back and think about how people over time evolved, when there was people wandering, looking before civilization, wandering, looking for places to live, if you lost your place, by the fire. You lost your 
warmth, your food, your protection, and you were in exile on your own in the wilderness. So there's a bit of us, yeah, we didn't last long, and there's a bit of us that know we need to be in groups and know how to keep safe in those groups. But those feelings have not necessarily evolved appropriate to modern life. So now, most of the time, if someone's not happy with us, it's probably not a life and death situation, but it feels it. We get a funny look, we get a funny comment with someone just doesn't quite interact with us the way that feels good. And it can feel like I'm going to go into exile and my life will be over. And it genuinely can feel difficult. And I'm not minimizing that because the exile can feel quite earth shattering. But we can still, I think we can still belong even when we don't conform. Because conformity is about the dogma that they were chatting about two weeks ago. If we have to conform to be okay in a group, that's a different thing. There's a way to belong without having to please everybody or all think the same way. And then our energy can go into actually thinking through, what's my ideas? What's my inspiration? What energy have I got? Without having to be worried about exile, but to trust that you can play your part in the ocean. And I was thinking about, what if we could approach one another with hope? So regardless of any historic perceptions or pains or anything else, that we could say, if hope is the confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken. In those relationships in your life, has the last word been spoken? Or is there more yet that we could say to one another and more yet that we could move to? And some of us carry around wounds from a time when we felt exiled in whatever situation. And perhaps we need a childlike approach that says, do you know what? I'm going to risk it again. There was, um, um, just to close this first part, there's been an experiment done regularly between um, um, where the task is this. You have to build the tallest possible structure using the following items. 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, one yard of transparent tape, one yard of string, one standard size marshmallow, and you have one rule that marshmallow has to end up on the top. And they have conducted this experiment countless times with business study students and adults versus very, very young children, like preschool, age three to five children. And the children always win. <laughs> they always win. Because the children, these are the three things that the children do. They don't get obsessed with status and all the endless and internal um, and external talk that brings. Who's setting the rules? Who's deciding? Whose idea is the best idea? Or is that person wanting me to do? What will happen if I don't do what they want me to do? Are we allowed to disagree? Um, they just get stuck in and give it a go. They literally just get stuck in no worries about who's boss. And they just start going, oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. No, try that bit here. Oh, yeah, that's really good. Keep going. And they stand close enough together that the interaction between them is what brings them success. And then they go far beyond the sum of their parts, like the ocean. They literally all just get stuck in, give it a go, without agendas, without worries about status, without worries about position. And they actually end up doing something quite brilliant as a, as a whole. Um, now, we could try something along these lines, and you're going to hear more about this um, as we go on this morning. Caring more genuinely, more fairly, more appropriately, and more consistently for yourself and for others. Caring enough to take the risk that the real you won't be acceptable to some in order to experience unconditional acceptance from others. And I love this bit. Caring enough not to saddle someone else with the responsibility of being your judge and executioner. 
Caring enough to acknowledge that we cannot truly say yes unless we can also say no. Saying yes is meaningless if no one if no was never really an option. When sometimes what we think we're doing when we're pleasing someone else is making them our judge and executioner and then when they don't like us, we villainize them. And it's dreadful when that happens because it's just an, an awful scenario. So if, if you're prepared to actually say, no, I'm going to take responsibility for what's in me and who I am and what I need to bring and it won't make everybody happy. But why did we make that the goal in the first place? Because if we can lay down our acquired or perceived status and positions, perhaps we can stand close enough to be part of the spectacular ocean we heard about a couple of weeks ago. Isn't that incredible? I absolutely love that video. Although I'm sure they said Onion Nebulous at one point, back in space. I'll have to check that one. <laughs> So um, someone, uh, Chris shared with us a quote that came to her when she saw this video and I just wanted to share it with you because it kind of connects with the video and what I'm going to say this morning. When we examine our bloodstreams under a microscope, we see that there's one hell of a fight going on. All sorts of microorganisms are chewing each other up and if we got overly fascinated with our view of our own bloodstreams in the microscope, we should start taking sides, which would be fatal because the health of our organism depends on the continuance of this battle. What is, in other words, conflict at one level of magnification is harmony at a higher level. Could it possibly be, therefore, that we, with all our problems, conflicts, neuroses, neuroses, sicknesses, political outrages, wars, tortures, and everything that goes on in human life are a state of conflict which can be seen in a larger perspective as a situation of harmony. So this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about that higher perspective and as the song said a minute ago, remind you who you are. So Joel a couple of weeks ago talked about a thing called the benevolent individual and he challenged us, he beckoned us to, oh it's about the power of the potential in all of us, sorry, and he beckoned us to confront our individuality, recognizing its potential, face it and transform it in the most powerful version of ourselves. But what stops us doing that? <laughs> because I think stuff can stop us having that potential. Why aren't we having that all the time? What gets in our way? What is the I inside? The irony is that the only person that's stopping you is you. <laughs> We're part of a vast and wonderful, magnificent world that's beyond anything we can really comprehend. So bathe in the vastness that surrounds us and trust the intricacy of your innermost parts. The stuff we get consumed with but builds up and we end up defining ourselves by this stuff, don't we? So much stuff happens in our lives that we decide who we are based on our experiences instead of that vastness and that intricacy that we're just talking about at the moment. In our brain, so I'm going to go a bit about the psyche now, in our brain that we have certain ways of storing memory. We have one of the most complex and vast memory systems. And our brains is like, it's basically like the biggest computer around. The, it, you know, the stuff that we can store, the way we can handle emotions, the way we can handle grief and things that come at us is incredible. We are incredible, really. But unlike a computer, we can let our back catalogue of stuff pop up. It comes up all the time, doesn't it, and causes a disturbance. And I talked about this a, a few weeks ago when, I talked to, when we were talking about joy and, and how our brain is actually split up into certain sections and there's the system one part of your brain, which is quick thinking. It's emotive, it calculates risk, but it neglects ambigu 
ambiguity and suppresses doubt. And doubt's important. We need to have doubt. We need to question things. We need to question our narratives. And it's biased to believe and conform and focus on the evidence it has as if nothing else existed. It cannot learn and it cannot be switched off. And this is also where anger resides. Then you've got the system two part of your brain, which is your long-term memory. So where memories and experiences have formed belief patterns and decisive action based on past conclusions, which may or may not be what actually happened, because that's the thing with memory. You're only going to remember how you saw it or how you felt it, and someone else could have that memory in a different way. Obviously, there's certain things like that you see that you know, you know, the sea was blue or whatever, but <laughs> that you, you always remember things based on that narrative and your emotive experience of that thing. Uh, sorry. So, but it's actually that part of our brain is the more analytical part, and it's actually pretty lazy. It's slow to react, which is why you've got your system one part brain, and it's where we make long-term decisive action, but it needs pushing into action. So it's a bit dangerous, really, if if that's where your pool of thoughts coming out of is those experiences and and um, you know belief patterns. And the system one part of your brain will always tap into that to. to um, Sorry, I've lost my notes. As if we're not taking care of the little of her. Yeah, our system one part of our brain will always tap into that and make its decisions based on those, those things that you're harboring. So, sorry. Our default choice is me. We're more likely to stick to what we believe about ourselves, about the world around us, and about our experiences. So you might have had an experience where you think, like, well, I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable, I'm, I'm going to be on my own forever, all men treat me bad, I'm sensitive, I'm difficult, I'm rejected. And we make decisions about ourselves, sometimes based on this experience that happened to us 10 years ago. Like I've, so many, I've got a friend at work who says, oh, but I'm really nervous and fearful. That's not how she comes across now at all. That might be what she was then, but she's not now. And we don't let ourselves evolve, we kind of decide who we are sometimes based on an expression of the past. And that's, all, and that's not always that helpful. And we can do that on the flip side. We can, I, I use this loosely, but we can become a bit egotistical and arrogant and be like, well, I'm too good for that. I'm too good for this. I don't need that. And we get a bit stuck in our pride as well. Basically, we love to revert back to what our experiences have told us. Our brains like familiarity, it loves routine, and it hates pain. So it will stop at pain at all costs, fight or flight. But we're not born with messy brains. We're not born with messy thought process. We were not made with a messy spirit. So what has created that? Instead of asking ourselves, what can I do to make this thing better? Because that's what we do, isn't it? When we're in a sticky situation, we're like, what can I do to get out of this? What can I do to make this better? What we should be asking is, why am I not that way? Why am I not that way in the first place? Because it's not your natural state to be messed up. And I'm going to explore now how and why we have become hoarders of our emotional baggage and hopefully teach us how to really understand and connect with the eye inside. Because I believe that we're filled with love. I believe we're filled with passion, filled with joy, filled with enthusiasm, inspiration, creativity, peace, potential. All that stuff that we want in our lives. That, that's where we should be coming from. It's the origin, absolutely. 
And we know this because it comes out in us, doesn't it, in certain experiences, when we fall in love, when music moves us, when a film makes us cry. And when, when we speak on a Sunday and excite you, you know, it moves you, yeah? So, <laughs> but why is it so conditional? Why is that stuff conditional? You know, it's something we've been taught here plenty of times, and it's always been there, that it was the origin, it's the authentic self, it's what God created in us, it's the I am. You know, but what stops us experiencing the full potential of that? Well, life, stuff, experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the things that have made an impression on our inner parts. If we keep everything that happens or has happened to us inside of us and keep it stored up, family troubles, breakups, work issues, relationship breakdown, all those past hurts that have left a mark, the impression, those impressions will start to reshape you from the inside out. And we develop biases. We develop biases about who is trustworthy. We attract like for like. We often gravitate to people who like our narrative, who have the same experiences and like the stuff we like. We tend to gravitate more towards that. People who confirm and conform to what we think as well. We attract that and we decide what, what's what based on how we've been treated, how we've been hurt. And on the flip side, how we've been loved. Our self-concept, hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties. They're all formed out of that stuff. We form our beliefs based on this stuff. We parent our children based on this stuff. We form relationships and friendships based on this stuff. And we measure our goals from this. And these experiences can then make us form stereotypes and judgments. And while we believe we are rational and logical, the fact is that these things are distorting our thinking, influencing our beliefs and swaying our decisions. And our system one brain will rely on these mental shortcuts to speed up our ability to make these decisions and pass judgments. We hold all that emotional baggage and it blocks us, causing trouble inside of yourself. But the fact is, if you're bothered on the inside, you'll be bothered on the outside. So what do we do? How can we change from the what can I do to make this better to why am I not that way? Well, I believe there's a third part to play in all this. I believe that there is a part of us that is beyond the psyche of our physical and mental mind beyond the storage of our brains and a higher place that we don't just tap into, but that we live from. That place is called the seat of consciousness. It's the source of love where God and all that spirit and all that energy and all that goodness and all that stuff that we want, that's where it resides. The place of love, joy, inspiration, peace and all that good stuff that we want to feel. And that energy passes through your psyche. It passes through your experiences. It passes through your baggage. And that's what we want to get out, isn't it? But the stuff is blocking the way. It's the very nature, isn't it? The very nature of this stuff is to be love and to be joy and to be passion and to be enthusiasm. The beauty within. But what happens is we often leave our seat empty and we go on our way into storing up our baggage. I mean, we've all, I mean, hands up. Who's got the chair in their bedroom that's full of stuff? It's full of all your clothes, isn't it? All the halfway clothes that you can't quite put in your wardrobe and they're not ready for the wash. How many of us have got a dining room table that's just stacked with stuff and chairs that, that, that they don't sit on? I mean, this, this is kind of what we're doing with this seat of consciousness. It's there, but we're just loading it with all this stuff. If we don't get in so involved with the stuff that's going on below, we can learn to have a higher perspective. But how do we connect with this? By passing through. 
passing through our experiences instead of letting them stick to us. Because we like that, don't we? We like to have our experiences and almost wear them as a badge of honor sometimes. You know, we dwell and we store it up. Instead of just feeling that experience, passing through, it doesn't mean that you don't experience what you're feeling and what you're going through. Because it's important to feel these things. It's important to feel pains and angers and stresses and frustrations and joys and happiness. It's important to feel all those things, but you have to let that experience end. Instead, what we try and do is stop it because we hate it, we suppress it, we, we, we don't like it, we just store it. And instead of letting that pass through and just be a part of who you were and are, you, you kind of store it up and it blocks you. So it's very important to pass through them. So my inner state can be more natural and remain more open. Embracing the moment as it goes from one to the next. Giving that energy and emotion the experience of room to release rather than push it down or express it negatively. That's where it stops us being in our natural state and on the throne of our seat of consciousness. So we must take our seats with a higher insight into what we're experiencing and how passing through our experience means we can better flow like the waves of the ocean. And just like the waves on the shore, you know, have you ever been at the beach where you're, you're chasing the waves at the, at the shore? They never stop in the same place, do they? They always stop in a different place. And just like the waves don't leave the same impression. Our experiences don't have to either. And like Chris beautifully said last time, we can then flow back into the ocean until our next wave is ready. And go with the flow. While Claire was talking, it just reminded me of a little story. Our Riley, when he was very little, he couldn't say dinosaur. And he used to call them doishaws. Well, I thought that's lovely. Isn't that a lovely word, a doishaw? And uh, when he was much older, and any time he had a dinosaur in his hand, I would call it, oh, are you playing with your doishaws? Until he got a little older and he turned around and he said, Grandma, they're not doishaws, they're dinosaurs. And I, of course, it was a little bit of a setback for me. He says, doishaw is in the memory dump. Now, the, if you remember the Inside Out film, something that was very precious to that little girl at the time ended up having to be put in the memory dump. And while I want to keep that memory of Riley, because it's sweet, it's cute, as far as he's concerned, it was done. And he'd put it in the memory dump. And as Claire was talking, I thought, how many of us need to do that? Just decide, enough now. I'm done with that. I'm big, bigger than Doyshaw. I can say dinosaur now, and I don't want grandma reminding me of my infancy, I want to be appreciated for my gained maturity. And uh, as Claire was talking, I'm thinking, yeah, that's th these are the simple applications to say, right, where in my life am I still doishoing <laughs> instead of dinosauring? And who is enabling us to keep the doishaw instead of saying, come on now, it's time to grow up. And I'm sorry for adding that, but it, I just thought it might be helpful for some of you in your journey. Think, what am I doing? What am I still using of my infancy that I really need to grow out of and move on? And I, I say that to me as well as you, you know, but it was it's just a thought, okay?
In all honesty, I just like that, the motion in the ocean line. So I'll probably played you that entire clip because of that one line. Um, but the, just the scale of some, a couple of those videos we've seen today, um, it's just that reminder, that perspective that we have sometimes. It's just, I mean, when you see that, that all that's going on in the ocean all the time, just as we're going about our everyday life, it blows my mind a little bit. So... One of the things that really struck me about that clip, as well as the motion in the ocean, was he talked about the three things, and he talked about how the motion in our, in our lives, as we're the ocean, if that's the picture, he linked it to the sun and the moon, which I thought was really interesting, because we've talked about that a lot in, over Easter time. He also linked it to the wind, um, which is so often associated with the winds of change in our life, and the things that come that, you know, ask us to respond differently. And then the heat and salinity, and we all know what it's like when the heat gets turned up in our lives and when we feel the pressure and the scrutiny and the challenge and this is what um, I read about the salt in the ocean the rain physically erodes the rock and the acids chemically break down the rocks and carry salts and minerals along in a dissolved state of eons ions eons one of them um, and when I, I just thought about how sometimes it feels like things are eroding our lives and breaking things down and I mean if uh, you know, we call it a meltdown, don't we? I mean, if you think about dissolving and melting us, I mean, we all have moments where we feel like we melt down. Something in us just, just crumbles, and then we have to find a new way to move in that moment. So there's two things that I wanted to just sort of end with this morning. The first is that I wanted to encourage you to really allow for the movement in your life. We talk about that a lot here because it's so important in a growing experience that we're moving. All, is ha all of that is happening this morning. As you sit in that pew this morning, not moving, um, you are actually moving. <laughs> I mean, you saw in that clip before Claire spoke, there is a lot happening even as you sit still all the time. There's motion in your ocean right now, that all that zooming in and zooming out, you're physically, your body is shedding skin. We're sharing skin this morning, it's nice. And all sorts as you sit here, um, healing, processing, attacking. Some of your cells are attacking on the cells in order to keep you well, um, resisting. The body's made up of so many things all going on at once, just as you sit still. And then we've also got all that stuff. Claire talks about the brain. You've all got stuff in your brain. Some of you are listening, some of you are not listening. Some of you like it, some of you don't. Some of you think, hurry up and let me get my cup of tea. Some of you think this is going to help and change my life. All of that is going on as you sit in your pew and we're all working that through. And the second thing is, as you, so the first one is allow for, to become conscious. Um, Claire talked about that seat of consciousness, that God part of us, that spirit within us. Allow that to be part that moves. I liked her halfway seat. That was very interesting. I do have a halfway stool. Does that count? Um, so allow, allow that movement. The second thing was we also have to know how to move with the current. If you think about current, we saw it in the video. We've also got the things that are current in our lives that, that Chris and, and Claire have both alluded to. In post-World War II in Japan, they found that a number of their returning soldiers were really struggling to reintegrate back into society. And so what they did was that they had to have this... Um, they introduced a ritual that would enable them, to, these soldiers, to actually have a moment where they, it was called discharging the loyal, well, it wasn't called this, but they, they reference it um, as discharging your loyal soldier. Because if you think about it, when you go to war, you have to 
be on it, you have to be in a high pressure environment, you have to follow instructions. It's the whole thing is incredibly intense. What do you do when you come home? How do you just put that down? And so what they did was they introduced the ritual where the soldiers were publicly thanked and they were praised effusively for their service to the people. And then one of the elders would stand and announce with some authority the words to the effect of the war's now over, the community needs you to let go of what has served you and served us well up to now, and it needs you to return as a man, a citizen, and something beyond a soldier. Um, and just like you've, you've already heard from Claire and Chris, there's some things in our life that we had to be soldiers in. We had to soldier on. We had to be there. We had to show up. We had to get through that thing. And then there comes a point where we have to say, that was then. This is now, and we need you to take a different place, and you need to put that thing down. And that kind of closure is so needed in major transitions in our life. And for some of us, that loyal soldier and how we keep at war is those things that we think make us less than or weaker than, and the giants that appear to always keep us in our place. But, you know, we're not necessarily the underdog, and that the giant is not necessarily at an advantage. And in the story of David and Goliath, there's a guy called Maxwell, Maxwell Gladwell? No, Malcolm Gladwell. I thought that was a weird name, Maxwell Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, um, he raised some brilliant questions about this story and how we've stored it as a story. Because on the face value, David versus Goliath, David's always going to lose. He's a tiny little shepherd boy, and Goliath has experienced massive, massive warrior covered in armor who's in one-to-one -one combat, combat, and he's always going to win. But actually, Goliath only had one way of fighting, which was hand-to-hand -hand combat, warrior to warrior. It was the only type he'd prepared for. And so when actually, um, what, and what King Saul does in the stories, he says to David, right, you're going out against Goliath, here's my armor, you put it on, you go out and fight him like that. And David's savvy enough to think, no, that's not going to work for me because I've been out in the fields fighting bears and tigers and anything else he was fighting. I don't know what animals were there then. Um, and he knows that that's not the way he fights. So he refuses to put on someone else's armor, goes in in the strength that he knows he's got. And because he can maneuver and he's agile and he's faster and he's quicker and he comes at Goliath with a strategy that Goliath wasn't used to, he was actually going to going to win. That, he was going to win. He wasn't at a disadvantage because actually Goliath wasn't at a disadvantage because there was only one way he knew how to do his life and he didn't have any flexibility to do it any other way. Um, he cannot comprehend a change in how these things work and before he knows it he's defeated by a slingshot but David is not burdened with heavy, ar heavy armor so he can run, be agile. He is not a rigid structure but he's a fluid motion and if we're going to be a wave as part of the ocean we have to be fluid enough to move not busy building empires in our lives. Life. That means when a change comes, we, we're, we're stuck because we've got no other way to be. Um, it's a great picture sometimes for how we must approach ourselves. We're not weaker in ways we may appear to be or think we are. We're not surrounded by insurmountable things that we appear to be at the mercy of. We're not lost in the crowd or compelled to wear life how others wear life, even when they want us to. We're not compelled to wear an earlier version of ourselves either. We are now and we can be loyal to now, and there's some stuff still very much unwritten in your life, if you will let it be. Two weeks ago, um, Chris talked about how religion of all types keeps us seeking for a future state when. Whereas faith says it's finished, and it's okay to be okay. 
And if we keep, if we make the individual ourselves a problem that needs to be resolved to meet God, she talks about how that might be good in the fact that everybody wants to flood into church to be fixed, but is it accurate? And out of my okayness, if I'm okay, out of my okayness, I then can become that benevolent individual and I can give. And this is the other thing that Chris said that I liked. As I serve you, I serve God, but I cannot be separated from the whole. So in that sense, I serve me too. And there's nothing wrong with that. So finally, I, I was thinking this this morning. If we focus on how precious and unique and great we are, it perhaps feels that there's a danger that we make it about ourselves and not about God. But when I was focusing on what a problem I was and trying to please God, how was that me not making it about myself and by standing before my standard before who I perceived God to be? I no longer worry about my standing before God anymore. And that frees up the time I spent worrying about that to give, not out of striving to be okay in my giving, but because I am okay and I want to. Um, I think that's better. And so Mary Oliver, a poet, says this, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And the final song asks us to look again at what we think we might know about ourselves and others. Look beyond the reasons and the conclusions we've come to be curious about it, and actually start to find some wonder about ourselves, about one another, start to let it all be a little bit unwritten um, in the now. Um, I trust that's helped you and at least given you something to think about this morning, and we'll see you all on Friday. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>